Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. We'll tell you why Hamilton has lost one of its sports teams. Hamilton welcomes the CP holiday train. Are you in a giving mood today? Canada has a plan to deal with China. Divorce settlements are getting tricky due to falling home prices. And what are the top 100 TV theme songs of all time? Find out as the GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, you've probably heard about the extensive renovations that are being planned at First Ontario Centre. So extensive that they're going to force all of the major sports teams that use the facility out for a couple of years because, well, it's it's more than a, a facelift or a, a rejig. This is almost a complete redevelopment. So for two years, teams like the Hamilton Bulldogs, the Toronto Rock, the Hamilton Honey Badgers won't be able to use that facility. And so yesterday, news dropped that one of those teams has decided to pull up stakes and not only leave First Ontario Centre, but leave the city entirely and relocating to Brampton. That is the basketball team, the Hamilton Honey Badgers. Mike Morialli is the commissioner and CEO of the Canadian Elite Basketball League and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm, I'm good, uh, Rick. Thanks very much for having me on. Was this a tough decision, or was this an inevitable decision? Oh, a little, a little bit of both. Uh, maybe a lot of both. Um, it, it certainly was tough. Um, you never want to pull up stakes anywhere, uh, that's for sure. But, you know, when we looked at the latest news we received, uh, going back on November 11th, about the, the two-year absence for us, it just became inevitable. Um, un- unfortunately, we were not aware that, it was going to be to that degree, um, and the relocation was going to be to that length. And now we found ourselves in a really precarious situation, especially with a, a young team um, that really has had a lot of stuff go against them you know, from COVID and, and everything else and really hasn't played a lot of games at First Ontario Centre. So grabbing your foothold in, in the community becomes more difficult, especially if you're forced to, to move away for a couple of years. The Honey Badgers, one of the best teams in the CEBL, the defending champions. Moving the franchise to Brampton, is this a blow to the league? Actually, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous opportunity that we were, we were gifted. Um, Brampton was always on the list of, uh, as, as a growth city. Um, it happens to be probably the top two, one or two places in all of Canada that produces Canadian basketball talent. It is ripe with talent. So, we knew inevitably that we would like to go to Brampton. Um, we've we've now you know found ourselves in a situation where you know we have to go. We're really excited about the Brampton side. We're just having to deal with obviously the fallout uh, of leaving a city that uh, was one of our original and, and leaving a fan base and leaving uh, sponsors, etc. Um, but we found that there was really no choice, and that unfortunately we just you know we didn't have a lot. We had a lot of time to prepare, but not a lot of time to prepare for the fact that um, this was going to be a lot longer than we expected. Mike Morielli is the commissioner and CEO of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. We're talking about the Hamilton Honey Badgers pulling up stakes, leaving Hamilton to relocate to Brampton. We had the owner of the Toronto Rock on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they've announced that they've, they're have they leaving Hamilton for these two years, but then coming back. Why not make the same decision for the Honey Badgers? Well, I think if you look at both, I can't speak for both, but you know, if you look at the Bulldogs, if you look at the Ticats and their relocation years ago, there's a pretty good long history um, of being in the city. With the Rock, they're a little bit different. The, the Rock still 
kept the Toronto name in Hamilton, they theoretically could play anywhere. Um, so it, it's a little different than that. We, we love to become part of the fabric of community and ingrain ourselves with the community and have our, our players out at schools and visits. And everybody lives there, unlike, you know, the Rock, which maybe they just come in for game day. So all our players are in market and they want to participate. And, and when you have to look to go to another market to resume play for two years, you, it's, you can't have one foot in the door, one foot out, because you have to jump into the market you're going to, in fairness to them. Um, so that, that put us in the position to say, okay, well, that's, that's a long, long time. We don't have a long track record. We've been burdened with COVID and other issues of not having fans in the stands. You know, how, how do we make this work? Uh, the best opportunity for us was to, for the continuation of what we were doing and for the strength of the league was to move the club now to have them uh, become part of the Brampton community in full force and then look to Hamilton again when the, the facility's done to return the team. I mean, it's it's my goal to bring a team here. It was, and we accomplished that. Now it's my goal to bring a team back whenever that may be, and that's the big asterisk and that's the big question mark. When will this renovation be done? You can say two years, but historically speaking, um, nothing's really gone to plan in the city when it comes to major projects. So I, I think there's everything combined that led us to say, what, is this a risk we want to take to the business to work uh, or to deal with a situation where there's been very little communication and we don't know what the future holds and we're going to take people's word for it. It's uh, That's not how you run a business. We're talking about the planned renovations at First Ontario Centre and how it's forcing uh, Hamilton sports teams to uh, call home elsewhere. Mike Morreale is the Commissioner and CEO of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. Were there other legitimate options in Hamilton or closer to Hamilton to keep the Honey Badgers in town? No legitimate op- options. Uh, we just had to, you know, deal with a team in Newfoundland that was playing at a, a university facility that, you know, even them on a temporary basis that just, it, it's not sufficient. And, you know, some people won't understand it. You just think you need a ball and some nets and you can play the game. But there's certain technical requirements you need. There's certain league requirements you need. There's certain fan base, fan facing requirements. Um, you know, simple things like food and beverage or playing on a proper court or proper nets would really eliminate every opportunity in the city um, from a, you know, so the universities just don't work. The, you know, community ranks don't work for various reasons. Some of that they just can't get into the building, can't even bounce a basketball because the score clock's too low. Um, and then you expand your reach out and see, you know, where's the next area that, you know, we can relocate to. And then you start looking at the available options to you because you have the blinders on when you, when you, when you're in the city, you're not looking elsewhere, but when you start to look, then you realize, wow, there are opportunities that may be better for us than having to sit and wait and figure out when this will all be done. Is the Honey Badgers brand moving to Brampton as well? Yes, they'll be, they'll be called the Brampton Honey Badgers. So a return to Hamilton would be under a new, uh, new team. All right, well, we will hold our breath for a couple of years and see what uh, what is in store for Hamilton basketball fans. But any Huddy Madger fans who want to follow the team will have to make the trip out to Brampton. Mike, appreciate the time today. Best of luck with us. Great, thank you very much. Mike Morielli is the CEO and Commissioner of the Canadian Elite Basketball League. Tough times for the league is obviously a huge opportunity in Brampton, there's no doubt about that. But losing a team like the Honey Badgers in Hamilton because they've been so successful has got to be a bit of a gut punch. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Speaking of the holidays and giving and celebrations, the CP Holiday Train is going to make a pit stop in Hamilton tonight. Ryan McHugh is the manager of tourism and events with the city of Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Doing excellent. How about yourself, Derek? I'm, I'm good. Tell us about what's going to happen tonight. Yes, absolutely. So uh, definitely a lot of festivities happening, as you mentioned. But tonight uh, we have the CP Holiday Train rolling into Gage Park. Uh, So this is just an amazing event. This is the 24th year that this event is taking place. And the first time in three years, this uh, cross-continental tour uh, is actually in person. So we're uh, past the virtual stages. We're now back in person. Uh, So the train will be arriving uh, on the tracks um, by Lawrence at Gage Park at quarter to eight, uh, and then a concert will commence at eight p.m. And we have uh, country Canadian country music stars Lindsay L. and JoJo Mason uh, will be uh, lighting up the stage, and it's going to be quite the spectacle. Rick, uh, the CP Holiday Train is uh, a thousand feet long. Um, it has fourteen bright rail cars that'll be decorated with lights and Christmas festivities. So just an incredible event, and it's all for. I also want to mention as well a great cause. It's to raise money, uh, food, and awareness for local food banks in the community along the CP network. It's a it's a win win win. There's a great entertainment. Obviously, the the donation part of it, you know, hits a home run as well. And to be back in person, I mean, it just feels so much better to see. You can, you know, you get that that feeling, that buzz from a live performance right in front of you. It should be an, an awesome night. It is, and it's uh, you know great. It's a celebration of you know country music, the holidays, um, and you know I want to say I'm happy to say I'm looking at the weather forecast, and we're actually uh, at at plus three, so uh, maybe a little windy. So encourage everyone to dress uh, warm, but uh, it won't be one of those minus twenty, minus fifteen nights, which is wonderful. <laughs> and uh, in addition to uh, just a celebration of the holidays and in person music, um, uh, the local. Uh, partner is Hamilton Food Share. Uh, so they do great work uh, throughout the community. So everyone's encouraged um, to bring non-perishable food items and cash donations are also encouraged. Uh, and since the program began, um, they've raised over $21 million and 5 million pounds of food for various communities. So we're looking forward to adding to those totals tonight. And I'm sure Hamilton will come out and support to the fullest. And that's really a special part of it. We know that the Christmas season is all about giving and giving to Hamilton Food Share, which does a tremendous amount of work in this community, is, as I mentioned previously, a win-win. It is, and they do, uh, just for those who aren't aware of the great work that Hamilton Food Share does. Uh, So they're an emergency food shipping and receiving hub, and they coordinate uh, emergency food network comprised of 23 hunger relief programs across the city. So they just do incredible work. So it's an amazing cause. And on top of that, it'll be a really good time. So definitely encourage everyone to come out. Ryan McHugh is our guest manager of tourism and events with the city of Hamilton. We're talking about the CP holiday train rolling into the Gage Park area tonight. It'll get there at around 745. The concert tonight is from 8 to 840 with Lindsay L. and JoJo Mason. Is there any idea on the crowd size tonight, given that we haven't had this in a couple of years? Yeah, it really is hard to say. Nice thing with uh, Gage Park, they can accommodate uh, you know, quite large crowds. Uh, you know, as you know, we have the great events like Festival of Friends, Rib Fest there. So, um, you know, in terms of capacity, we can we can accommodate you. So come on out. But uh, I don't want to make any uh, predictions. But I think because of the fact that we're back in person for the first time in three years, the weather should be nice. 
uh, I think we're going to have a great turnout and it's going to do Hamilton proud. I would think so. Ryan, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Ryan McHugh. Take is care. The, you too. Ryan McHugh is the manager of tourism and events with the city of Hamilton. Again, you want to be at Gage Park tonight, 745 is when the CP holiday train rolls into town. The concert from Lindsay L. and JoJo Mason will be from 8 to 840. More details online at cpr.ca slash holiday train. And the best part about it, apart from, you know, getting into the Christmas spirit, uh, being a part of what should be an awesome concert is those donations to Hamilton Food Share, either by giving money or bringing a non-perishable food item. Either way, you're making a big, big dent in the food crisis here in town. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You will notice that hashtag Giving Tuesday is trending on social media, whether it's Twitter or any other place that you're visiting in the social media universe and for good reason today is the 10th annual giving tuesday event it's really a global generosity movement not only here in canada or the u.s but really around the world there are dozens of countries i think over 80 countries now participate in giving tuesday so what is it all about how did it all get started and how can you make a difference nicole danessi is a senior manager public relations and unite for change with canada helps and joins us now on good morning hamilton nicole good morning how are you good morning i'm very well thank you giving tuesday started 10 years ago how did this movement get off the ground Right. So it actually started in 2012 in New York City uh, when a bunch of different groups of organizations in the city came together. And the concept was quite simple. After Black Friday and Cyber Monday, two days filled with shopping and consumerism, we need a day to give back. And that's essentially where Giving Tuesday was born. Um, in 2013, Giving Tuesday officially came to Canada. So you are correct. Today is our 10-year anniversary, which is quite exciting. Um, and it was co-founded by Canada Helps. And millions of dollars are raised on Giving Tuesday to support so many causes. And even aside from money, um, so many acts of good and kindness are also uh, take place today. Yeah, it's not just a financial commitment you have to make. You can volunteer, you can give a, a gift, you can give the gift of time. Uh, there's really, uh, you know, endless amounts of ways to give today. Right. It, today is really a day for first, I, I'd say, reflection, thinking about sort of the cause that you care most about, whether it's animal welfare, a health related cause um, or other. You know, there's so many different causes. We list all 86,000 registered Canadian charities on our website at Canada Helps for Canadians to be able to browse and give to. Um, and then it, it's really a day where you can choose, make that conscious choice as to how you want to support your favorite organization, uh, whether it's setting up a monthly donation, making a one-time donation. Um, you can even give a charity gift card, for example. There's so many different ways to take part in Giving Tuesday. In regards to those financial donations, because I know this is a big part of it because charities and nonprofit organizations can do a lot of good with that money. How much money has been raised over the years? So last year at Canada Helps, and this was only Canada Helps, uh, we are Canada's largest online giving platform for donating and fundraising online. We raised $11.4 million on Giving Tuesday last year, and today we are really hoping to be able to beat that. Um, so we're hoping that Canadians give quite generously. Is that 11.4 an all-time high? 
that is the most we've raised on Giving Tuesday. So we want to continue to beat records. <laughs> <laughs> I know the need is substantial. We've spoken with a number of charities in town. We know that food prices are where they are. More and more people going to food banks. The, the need is greater than ever. And that really puts a strain on people's ability to donate as well. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely. We actually just recently conducted an Ipsos poll where we asked Canadians how many would be expecting to receive support from essential charitable services from charities in the next six months. And that number was actually two in 10 Canadians expecting to go to a charity in order to access basic needs like, for example, food and shelter. That's 22% of Canadians, which um, is quite alarming. That number was actually at 14% in January earlier this year. And now it's looking like in the next six months, you know, if, you know, it could be up to about 22%. If someone donates to Canada Helps, does the donor specifically determine where the money goes? Exactly. So on, when you go to Canada Helps, you can browse 86,000 registered Canadian charities. So you know that these are trusted organizations registered with the Canada Revenue Agency um, that have to meet you know, standards and guidelines that are set by the CRA. Um, and we list all of those organizations. There's so many organizations, very niche causes. You know, sometimes I'm always, always surprised about the different types of causes you can support by different charities, uh, which is really great to see. But you get that choice as well. That's awesome. Nicole, thanks for the time today, and let's hope that everyone is able to give on this Giving Tuesday. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nicole Danessi, Senior Manager of Public Relations and Unite for Change at Canada Helps. You can find them online on their website. You can also give on this Giving Tuesday to the 900 CHML Christmas Tree of Hope, powered by Leggett Drive Life. It's back for year number 46. And yes, we are accepting your financial donations. You can do so by texting the word DONATES to 30333 and make a $10 or $20 donation. You can also go online to 900CHML.com and donate via CanadaHelps.org or PayPal. Give where you live and all the money that you donate goes to some amazing organizations in Hamilton and Burlington who offer uh, assistance or programs to less fortunate kids in our community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. China will have more respect for Canada when we have a bigger presence uh, among its neighbors and uh, are seen to be players and making important contributions. The Trudeau government out with its long-awaited strategy to deal with an increasingly disruptive China, and it includes a larger military footprint in that part of the world. So what does this plan look like, and how effective is it going to be? Jeremy Paltiel is a professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jeremy, good morning. Hello. Hey, how are you? What do you make of this uh, five-year, half-a-billion-dollar strategy? I'm having a hard time hearing you, but but, uh, the plan is one which is built around um, building closer relationships with our senior ally, the United States, and um, American allies in the region, as well as ASEAN, Southeast Asian, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and India, in order to hedge against an increasingly powerful China, which Canada now sees as a disruptive influence in the region. And, of course, Canadian public opinion has turned sharply against China with the two Michaels incidents. Um, So this is certainly something that we want to do 
because of what Canadians feel about China and also because um, our senior ally, the United States, is seeing this as the major uh, problem in the world today. Jeremy, should we be alarmed that this plan includes a bigger Canadian me, military I'm, footprint? I'm having a hard time hearing you. Well, maybe we'll, we'll reset with Jeremy here. Let's put him on hold and get him back and uh, maybe boost his volume to the, the max. I'm not sure. Here. I think Jeremy might be having a technological issue on his side. We'll get him back uh, ASAP. But this is a, as I mentioned, a five-year, half-a-billion-dollar strategy. And one part, and I was just kind of alluding to it, is a bigger military footprint in that part of the world, in the Indo-Pacific region. And of course, the U.S. has for years been in that area with massive amounts of military personnel, equipment, uh, a, a fleet of ships, whatever the case is. Canada seems to be not necessarily going down that route in terms of the enormity of the military contingent it plans to unleash in that part of the world. Uh, obviously would be side by side with the American forces and in offering support to what is the biggest military um, uh, fleet, if you will, not only naval, but uh, Army and uh, and Marines and Air Force in that area. What does it mean for the future of these two countries when it comes to trade partnerships? I would imagine that this is going to throw a huge wrench into the uh, trading future between Canada and China. As you know, I mean, you look at, go into your closet and check out all the clothing items you have, that's from China. There's probably a few of them. If you're, you know, the common Canadian, there are people I know, there are people out there who do not buy Chinese-made items, whether it's clothing, uh, electronics, which is very difficult to do because there is a piece of virtually everything electronically that is uh, made in China or finds in China. Jeremy, do we have you now? And can you hear me? I guess yes, most importantly. Yes, I can hear you now. Oh, uh, excellent. I was I was alluding to the, the military component of this, yeah. because part well, of the strategy yeah. is is a bigger military footprint for Canada. Is that is that alarming? Should that set off alarm bells? Well, it, it is a bigger military footprint for Canada, but it's not really a huge investment in terms of the increment. I, our footprint will be... Up will still be much, much larger in, in Europe, but it's a recognition finally by Canada that uh, Asia is where things are happening today, and uh, we need to have a presence in the region. And so that uh, we're ramping up very, very slowly um, and very incrementally our presence in the region, mainly in concert with our American allies and hopefully also with uh, Japan and South Korea and possibly Australia. Um, but it is not a very, I mean, we're not doing what the Australians were doing. We're not spending $50 billion on nuclear submarines. we got a couple more minutes with Jeremy Paul Thiel, a professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. What does this do to our trade partnership with China? I think that, um, you know, obviously trade will continue because people will buy the things that they want at the right price. But the, in in this uh, strategy and in the t- tone of what's coming from Ottawa is, A, that we will not be looking as uh, uh, China as our favorite partner. We will not be looking to increase much uh, trade and investment. There are more restrictions coming to investment from investment in China. And uh, Chinese like China, likewise, is going to try and uh, probably shift its, its trade elsewhere. The other thing that they've been saying is that um, they do not feel that they can protect 
Canadian business persons in China, so they're basically discouraging Canada from looking Canadians from looking to China first for their trade. We only got about thirty seconds. You know, China's been doing what they've been doing for years. This sounds like too little, too late on on what Canada is trying to achieve here. Well, I'm not sure that what Canada is trying to achieve is to actually change China. Um, and nor or necessarily change the t- tone of Canada-China relations. I think what we're doing is more aligning with the United States in what it's doing and responding to Canadian public opinion about not getting closer to China. It's not really about uh, changing China's behavior. That's a good point, Jeremy. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy your day. Thank you. That is Professor Jeremy Paul Thiel in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Many of you listening right now have purchased a home, uh, let's just say in the last five years. Certainly since 2017, that was the first real, real big boom here in Hamilton. And then Easter weekend rolled around and the then Kathleen government, Kathleen Wynne government, uh, instituted the stress test and other measures that would uh, try to keep housing prices from exploding as, as they were early in 2017. And, uh, and, you know, prices settled down a little bit. Well, that stress test certainly helped in, in that regard, but with... You know, interest rates at that time at an all-time low, people were still able to jump into homes. And, you know, as the years went by, the price of homes went up and up and up. And then certainly during the pandemic, about the summer of 2020, another explosion in terms of activity. Because more and more people were working from home and they were thinking, wow, I got this million-dollar house in Toronto. I can work from home and live in a much cheaper house and, you know, rake in all that cash, put it in my bank account, and there's, there's you know, a, a runway to retirement or to have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> and so over the last number of years, we've seen those house prices really go up until about four or five months ago when interest rates starting to rise, Bank of Canada slowly jacking up those rates, it seems month after month after month, and lo and behold, now with mortgages in around the 5 to 6, 6.5% range, you know, homeowners are thinking, oh, geez, like there's, there's no way I'm going to move now. It's going to be a lateral move. And so from time to time, and we also heard this during the pandemic, the divorce rate with more and more people at home living and working alongside one another, it, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. How could it not? And so now we have two conundrums here. We have falling house prices and we have the divorce rates where it is. There's there's an impact here. And we're going to get into it with Russell Alexander, the founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. He's also the author of Zoom Divorce. Russell, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Good to be with you today. So we have falling house prices and we have people still obviously getting a divorce in, in some respects. How is one impacting the other? Well, the impact is significant. Uh, it depends on a number of factors, Rick. You know, if you're married or common law, if you have kids, possible bias. But probably the most important impact is what date to use the value of the home. If you're married, you're going to use your date of separation. And if you go to court, that could take a few years to clear up. 
So if you're going, if you're using your data separation value, like you said in your introduction, you know, a few years ago, the homes were worth eight, nine hundred thousand dollars. And now the market's starting to dip and you're using and you're and you use the higher number. And now that home is only worth five or six hundred thousand dollars. There's a real shortfall that somebody's going to bear. And there's some unfairness to that. And so who is bearing the brunt of that? Obviously, it's the couple who's separating because one or both is getting a lot less. Well, the whole it, you're right. If, if they're selling and nobody's keeping the home, the whole family loses that value. If one person's keeping the home at the previous high-level high value, then obviously the person who uh, chose to leave and take that number is going to be much better off by a few hundred thousand dollars. So this fact-specific. And we also, we're seeing cases, Rick, where some people are delaying the sale of the home. They don't want to move. So they're not allowing the real estate agent in or they're not agreeing to a reasonable price. And as that delay is occurring, the house prices are dropping. And with that happening, are we seeing fewer and fewer couples or individuals who decide to stay in the home selling the home because they're thinking, well, I bought it for, I don't know, 900K. Now it's worth 800, I don't want to lose that 100K. I'll just stay in the house. Yeah, it's all fact specific. Most people think their homes are worth a lot more than what it actually is worth. They know their neighbor down the road sold for X number of dollars six months ago or a year ago. So they always are hopeful they're going to get the best price. But ultimately, Rick, if the parties or the the spouses cannot agree, uh, the home will be sold on the market for whatever the market will bear. And uh, then you're going to incur the disposition costs. There's going to be some legal fees. You're going to have to pay your real estate agent some money. So if that happens, everybody loses. We're talking about the impact of falling house prices are having on divorce settlements with family lawyer Russell Alexander, the author of Zoom Divorce. What happens when one person wants to remain in the house? How does that work? Usually what what we encourage our clients to do is to encourage an out-of-court settlement use lawyers to negotiate the uh, the final agreement and get accurate information. So even though the market's dropping, we can get a, a real estate agent to give us an opinion or we can get a certified appraisal of that property to get a good idea of what that property is worth and then go with that number. That's sort of the best case scenario for everybody. It reduces expense, it's re- relatively efficient and one person usually gets to stay in the home. And if you have young children, we don't want to be moving them around too much. We want them to have some stability and familiarity. They may have friends and family in that community. So we try not to have them move around too much. So let's say a woman and her kids remain in the home. They're getting a divorce. The husband's moving out. The husband is going to ask for the equivalent of half of that house value. What happens in that regard? Is it a a cash payments, future payments, assets? How's that broken down? If they're married, the matrimonial home would have, you know, special rights attached to it. If you're common law, it depends who owns the home. But essentially, if one person wants out, you're going to pay that person their one half equity, less any disposition costs, like what it would cost to sell on the market. That could be twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars. And then we'd have to consider: are there other assets that you want to set off against that? In your case, perhaps the husband has a pension that's worth a lot of money that needs to be shared as well. So you could set off the pension against the interest in the home and avoid having to make a large payment. 
Interesting stuff. Russell, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to explain how this uh, these proceedings are working. I'm sure it's uh, tricky stick handling uh, from here on in. Thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Rick. Have a good day. You too. Russell Alexander, the founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers and the author of Zoom Divorce. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. How is this TV theme song not in the top 100 of all time, Rolling Stone? Come on! The A-Team, one of my faves. Songs and shows. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine out with the top 100 TV theme songs of all time. And I'm sure it's going to cause some controversies. Usually these kind of lists do. Because when you look at it, you're thinking, where's my favorite show? What? It's at that number? No, it should be much higher. Or that show is number one or two or three? Come on. There's way better theme songs than that. Well, top 100. There's actually 101 on this list. There's actually a tie in the top five. And I'm also saying, come on, Rolling Stone, make a decision. Uh, Not even in the top 50. Here are some of the TV theme songs, the best, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Three's Company, not in the top 50. They're at number 98. Walking Dead at 90. Stranger Things, that's a great one, at 88. 87 is the Big Bang Theory. Flintstones at 86. Green Acres, an iconic TV theme song, at number 80. WKRP in Cincinnati, 78. Happy Days, 66. The Odd Couple is at 60. The Andy Griffith Show at 59. MASH at 55. All those TV themes not in the top 50. Well, let's start at number 5 in the all-time top 100 TV theme songs. into Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Iconic TV theme song, and I think at number five, it's a good spot. In the top 50, Sesame Street at 50, Love Boat at 48, The X-Files at 39, Golden Girls at 38, Laverne and Shirley at 36, The Dukes of Hazard. Paul mentioned it during the roundtable at 34. Adams Family at 33, Hill Street Blues at 27. Before we get into some of the all-time best TV themes in the top 20, let's go to number four. And you would not think of this show or this theme as being one of the all-time best. That is my guess. At number four. I was working hard at a New York job, making go, but it made me blue. One day I was crying a lot, and so I decided to move to West Covina, California. Brand new pals and new career. It happens to be where Josh lives, but that's not why I'm here. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. What? No, I'm not. She's the crazy ex-girlfriend. That's a sexist term. Uh, it is a catchy tune, there's no doubt about that. Crazy ex-girlfriend, which was on the CW from 2015 to 19, is the fourth best TV theme song of all time, according to Rolling Stone magazine. Again, catchy. I would not have put that in the top five, but to each their own. At number 20, All in the Family. Oh, that is one of the best. One of the, that's got to be in the top 10. Nope, says Rolling Stone. The Muppet Show at 17. Mission Impossible at 15. Cheers at 13. At number 12, Hawaii Five-0. And Game of Thrones, another adrenaline-boosting 
uh, TV theme at number 11. All right, let's go back to the top five. At number three, the number three all-time best TV theme song. Oh, it's a toe tapper. It's a finger snapper. It is Sanford and Son on NBC from 1972 to 77. Awesome show. Wonderful theme song. Number two. It's actually tied for number two. And here is the first, I guess, runner-up in the TV theme songs, the best of all time. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing Yes, the Brady Bunch is number two, and the Brady Bunch is actually tied. That's a great show, great theme. Brady Bunch is actually tied for second with this all-time great show and all-time great theme. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship. Gilligan's Island at number two. Also making the top ten, Too Many Cooks at ten, The O.C. at nine, Friends at eight, Seventh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Twilight Zone at six, and number one on Rolling Stone Magazine's top 100 TV themes of all time is... Where we're moving on. Jefferson's, yes, fantastic theme, awesome show. I would say you can make a case, make a case of many shows being the number one TV theme of all time. Rolling Stone Magazine certainly made its case. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.